There's this book by Ryan Holiday, The Obstacle is the Way. And like getting told that you can't do that, that was such good motivation for me. Like I turned that into an opportunity to go learn how to do it. And like, it might've been kind of negative. I'm like, well, fine, I'll go learn on my own then. But like, that's the motivation I needed at that time in my life. Welcome to Trail Effect episode 29. I am your host, Josh Blum. Trail Effect is a show that dives into the stories behind trails, the communities that embrace trails, and the people who rely on trails as a way of life. The goal of this show is to turn the stories you will hear from our guests into useful knowledge that can be applied to your community while providing some entertaining and inspirational content. Guests on Trail Effect include trail builders, board members, community leaders, volunteers, and regular people who really enjoy trails. I am constantly surprised and grateful for the conversations I've been able to have with all the guests on Trail Effect. Every conversation has me walking away with a new appreciation for the guests themselves, the experiences they are willing to share, and the fact that we are all brought together by trails and mountain bikes. It has been a surreal experience, one that will continue to roll on. For episode 29, we bring you a conversation with Jeff Kendallweed. Jeff has been an industry insider for more than a decade and is also known for his YouTube content. Jeff has a very infectious personality which comes through in a very positive way during the show. We discussed everything from how he got into the sport of mountain biking to how he's helped promote the hard work of advocates to bring more access for trails with his local loam series. This is a good one, so sit back and enjoy the show. Support for Trail Fit comes from Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin. Smith's is a full-service bike shop that is a retailer for Trek Bicycle Company and Salsa Cycles. Smith's also has a full line of components and accessories from Bontrager and other various companies. For more information about Smith's Bike Shop, go to www.smithsbikes.com. A special thanks goes out to Ben Wellenek of Mountain Bike Radio for supporting this podcast and to the people who have shared their time and knowledge. Without this, we would not have these stories to tell. This podcast is an Evolution Trail Services production. For more information about Evolution Trail Services, go to www.evotrails.com. I find it way more interesting. Like I've been watching, I forced myself to watch more like media out there like more youtube and stuff than ever in the past because it's helpful but the way joe rogan starts his podcast he just like gets right into the real questions with no small talk and it's like it makes so much more sense that way so i just feel like you could just start a podcast as soon as someone says hello and that creates a more genuine thing oh for sure yeah 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 um i've always got this camper van set up for driving to sedona or whatever and for whatever and it's just terribly uncomfortable to drive it's a ram promaster and the ergonomics are horrendous so yeah, I try to break the drive up because I can't physically handle sitting in that thing. But it's like such a cush way to travel with a bed and back. I got a kitchen, a refrigerator. I can edit videos when I'm stopped because I've got a power bank. So I just totally went 180 and I just built out a touring motorcycle with a bike rack on it. So I can try to go the complete opposite and have to sleep under a tarp in a hammock and have my just one bicycle, not a bike and two backup bikes, like no spare parts allowed now. So I'm going to have mega plush and mega simple for traveling. Wow. So yeah. what, what type of motorcycle did you build out for touring on then? It's kind of like an adventure bike. It's like the ultimate dad motorcycle. Not exciting at all. Not, not sexy whatsoever. It's a Suzuki V-Strom 1000. So it's like, and right now it still has like street tires on it. It'll fit knobbies. So I'm going to be setting it up more for kind of an all around, you know, 25% dirt road, 75% street. Last night, there was like some trenches on the road and some I, 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 I sign said like motorcycles use extreme caution. And I'm like, oh, I bet I could jump this and just pop the clutch, got it up on the front on the rear wheel and then jammed it forwards. And just like on a dirt bike, it bunny hopped over these two trenches. 
And it worked great. And these, I didn't even notice this. So there's a couple walking a dog over there. And they were just like, both of them were saucer eyed, <laughs> jaw dropped. Like, we're not expecting to see this ultra dorky motorcycle bunny hop a bunch of trenches in the street. But that thing, it's been super fun. It's so, I've, I've never really been into street biking. It's too dangerous for me. So I'll try it for a while and see. Long trips seem safer to me than around town. So, yeah, that sounds like it'll be a lot of fun, though. Yeah, it'll be something. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Well, should we kick this thing off officially? Unofficially, officially? Yeah. Yeah. So what's the Trail Effect podcast all about? Like if you could sum it up in one sentence, what your goal is with the podcast, what, what is it? Uh, spreading the good word of how trails really help build communities. Okay, cool. Obviously I've, I've detoured into different areas, especially with the women's stuff. Yeah. Um, but the r- reality is, is you can't have trails without personalities. And, it, and if I can showcase all the different personalities that also use trails and how they use the trails mm-hmm. and what they get from using trails, I believe that is also a super important aspect of, of this podcast and, and the message I'm trying to spread. Well, and if you take like a successful mountain bike community, it's not just like the stereotypical average white dude who's 40 years old trail riding. It's not just that one demographic. Like a successful community has people from every walk of life involved out riding. So it's, it's fantastic seeing people of all shapes, colors, sizes. Like I see almost not as many kids as grownups, but the amount of kids out here on Galbraith and Bellingham is like, it's pretty cool. It's like actually a family sport. And I grew up mountain biking being like, no, 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 There's like, it's all super hush hush. Like you have to ride by all the shooting zones where people are like shooting their shotgun and drinking beer. You got to go past all the sketchy off-road zones where folks are like dumping trash and it's like not family friendly and it's totally changed from that. And it's really relieving to see that happen. Yeah. Yeah. So, so that's why I really like, I like getting these stories out, you know, cause more communities I think can benefit, especially if you can get any type of elected official to listen to anything. Mm-hmm. And they can kind of see, um, obviously tourism is a big thing, but I kind of take the route that it's really about building a great place to live, mm-hmm. especially with our shortage of quality employees these days and the ability for people to move in many cases, wherever they want with virtual yeah. um, work and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, we're really trying to build a good quality of life. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Man, I follow the the moto side of things a lot more. I started getting into off-road racing and all that in 2008 and just like following that scene and where the manuf- like, there's only really five manufacturers and they are so not interested in advocacy whatsoever. And you know, none of them are based in the United States, but they do a lot of R&D in the states, but still like they've taken very little leadership role. And I think it's kind of reflected a little bit in the moto community. You have these awesome scenes, like a lot of the motor races I would go to would be four or 500 people showing up, which dwarfs most mountain bike races. And the local organization would be really strong, but it was so little from anything beyond that. And in mountain biking, we have so many more manufacturers, you know, there's about a dozen that are decently good sized and prevalent throughout. And luckily, a lot of them are based here in the US. Not all, of course, but yeah, they seem more involved. And so I think we're heading in a a pretty positive trajectory. So it's going to be cool to see that continue. Yeah, that's actually one of the other angles I like to push is talking to people within the industry, companies that really push the advocacy side of things, you know, because without, I mean, without trails, it's pretty cliche to say, but without trails, we don't, we can't go mountain biking, right? Totally. And like part of why I just, I sold my, my dirt bike, which I spent years building out and dialing in. I sold it like three weeks ago because to ride, like I don't have access to anything legal that I could show on the internet or really even talk about. 
without loading it up and driving half an hour. Whereas like if I'm not exactly following the law per se with where I'm riding, there's a lot more options, but I can't publish that on my YouTube channel and share it with my followers and all that. So it was like, it was kind of frustrating. So anyhow, it was like getting something I can actually ride from home, like just like mountain bike trails, I can ride from home to single track easily. So it's just the accessibility has gone way up and that, that helps big time with yeah, the whole thing. Yeah. And that's, that's an important aspect to continue to push on is the riding from home part, you know? Yeah. And there's so many communities that can benefit from that. Totally. Yeah. I, I mean, taking my daughter to and from school, it's like oh, maybe half single track through the woods. It's, it's, and that's like such a cool experience to like, it's literally every day. And like, there's a difference between fun riding and commute riding. Cause you're always in that much more of a hurry with commute riding. And so it's just like, ah, it's super fun to change it up a little bit like that. Yeah. Let's get into your backstory. Oh man. How'd you get into this whole world of, of just even being interested in the bicycle in general? Yeah. Yeah. I'm from the Santa Cruz mountains and like, you know, pretty far out there, like halfway between Santa Cruz and Los Gatos, we can see Monterey and Santa Cruz in the Monterey Bay from my parents' deck, but it's like 20 minutes to the nearest gas station in town. Like there is one store five minutes away from the house and that's kind of it until you're down in the main cities. So, um, somewhat backcountry, and my neighbor had a, had a dirt bike and it was the coolest thing. Cause he had this sweet jump built and the school bus to drive past it. And I'd see him hitting this pretty sweet jump. And I just so wanted to do that. So I remember building jumps and trying to imitate him. And I just had tons of energy as a kid. And, uh, yeah, so it, I was going through pictures with my daughter this morning. She likes to hear little baby dada stories. And when little baby dad, I got his first bike is a favorite story of hers. And my mom sent a photo in the mail and I had that bike, like a picture from 1990. And I'm showing her in this training wheels. It's a Schwinn girls cruiser that our friends bought from Goodwill in Santa Cruz. And, it, you know, clunky hunk of junk or whatever. But I saw this neighbor hitting this sweet jump and I'm like, I want to do that. That looks awesome. And my parents always said no to getting a motorcycle. And I'm like, well, I have this bicycle. So let's, let's make it happen. Let's just pretend. Kids are great at pretending. Yeah. And then, uh, stuck, stuck with that, just building jumps and hitting them forever. And then finally my parents caved in and said, yes, that I could get a dirt bike. But then a neighbor, um, was riding in the bucket of her dad's tractor, fell out and got ran over by the tractor and passed away. And that was just like too shocking, too close to reality of how dangerous life is. And my parents pulled the plug on the whole motorcycle idea and got me a, a BMX bike instead. And so I was 10 years old when that happened. So like the difference of like jumping an old specialized hard rock or whatever to an, a real BMX bike, it, it's a substantial difference. Um, so yeah, starting at 10, got into just build, digging jumps, hitting them. And then I heard about the BMX track once we started going to the dirt jumps down in Cupertino at Calabasas and got into BMX racing pretty heavy and stuck with that all through middle school and into high school. Never did very well. I'm like not a very good natural athlete. So I was like struggling to make it out of the intermediate class for years. And then I went to the same high school as this BMX guy named Ryan Nyquist. He's won the X Games a whole bunch. He, do you know who he is? Maybe. Of course. <laughs> okay. Yeah. A lot, of, a lot of mountain bikers don't. But um, no, I totally do. I've been around for a really long time and as far as in this thing. So yeah, I totally do. Cool, cool. And I would ride the skate park that him and Chad Kegi and uh, Joey Garcia and that Mardisich were all part owners of. I would ride there all the time after school. It was like down in the hood of San Jose, like legit ghetto. And my parents would drop little 13, 14 year old me off. And I was too afraid to talk to anyone there, but <laughs> would always end up riding there and got super into the street and dirt jump scene. I, like 
it was pretty cool to have access to a lot of that stuff. You know, it was a little bit of a drive to get to, but Ryan's younger brother, Shay, took me to a bunch of cool spots when I was like a freshman in high school and just learned so much and got super inspired. So yeah, high school years were all about hitting really, really, really big dirt jumps. I remember I got to go to Camp Woodward in Pennsylvania for two weeks. And on day one or day two, I'm hitting the the jumps, the dirt jumps, where they had literally had the X Games a few weeks before. And I just came up short on one really big jump. You know, it's probably 30 feet long or whatever. And I think I broke my foot, but I never actually wanted to get it x-rayed because I didn't want to find out. So <laughs> every two hours for the next two weeks, I would go and ice that foot and then get back to riding and then go ice it some more. Um, but yeah, uh, when I was like 11, we, I got my first mountain bike. It was like to get better at BMX racing. One of my best race friends, his dad rode mountain bikes and we were going to go train with this mountain bike. And if you've ever heard of the SoCal Demonstration Forest, that's the namesake for the specialized demo eight and demo nine because demo forest that's where they go test it that's about three miles from my parents house so when i was like 11 12 i was just start riding out to those trails and do laps out there by myself and then i got a legit mountain bike in 98 97 it was like a you know a year or two old bontrager size small hardtail soup like half off msrp the bike shop just wanted to get rid of it and yeah nicest bike i'd ever even I'd, I'd ever owned and pretty much still to this day, <laughs> nicest bike I ever had to like buy or whatnot. I remember I paid for about half of it with my own money at the time and mom and dad helped with the rest. But yeah, so that was kind of the background. And then the, what happened was I'd always ride mountain bikes when it was raining because the dirt jumps would be too wet to actually, you know, you couldn't ride your BMX bike in the wet, but your mountain bike on the trails in Santa Cruz, the, there's not really mud. It's just like wet loam. So yeah. Um, hardcore hardtailing and then sea otter was super close i remember going to sea otter as a kid and like always like every year from the early 90s onwards and then i i competed in like i don't know basically i've been to every sea otter besides 2006 when i was living in spain studying abroad and i think i met i think the first one i went to was like 93 or 94 skipped one or two and then from 96 until the most recent one, which was what, two years ago now? I've been to every single one besides that one that I missed because I was in Spain. So that's how the trials thing started. Because when you're a kid, you like, you're popping around sea otter. And the only thing that's fun to watch is dual slalom and trials. And then trials, you could actually do it. Whereas dual slalom, you had to wait until the event was over. And then it was a dollar for a run on the dual slalom course. Buck oh, a wow. run. Yeah, yeah. And of course, the guy, Keith DeFibre, that built those courses and organized all that. He was organizing the CCCX downhill races back in the day, and he's still super into the, the scene. It, it's pretty cool. Not like it's all the same people still 30 years later. Yeah. yeah. So you, you mentioned something that really piques my interest, which is the fact that you say you're not naturally talented, mm -mm. but people that watch your YouTube videos obviously know that you have a lot of talent, you know, especially with manuals and wheelies and the trials type stuff. So could you kind of deconstruct how, you know, what you did to get, the skills that you have? Uh, well, I think like, um, I think there's a few other folks kind of in this similar realm that might not have much natural athletic ability. And that has forced them to like break things down and practice over and over and over. And then because it's a challenge, it keeps you addicted to it. Whereas like the natural talents that do things right away, they often kind of drift to a sport and then drift away because it doesn't, you know, it's not hard enough to keep them engaged. So that's kind of my theory there. But, um, when, once I got out of high school and like I just for BMX, I just wanted to be as good as I could be or whatever. 
And I would just constantly practice the same trick over and over and over because you had an easy goal. It's like, I'm going to pull this trick. And then in high school or in, uh, in college, I wanted to get into downhill racing. That's when I really started focusing on more mountain bike specific drills, like braking drills, cornering drills. And I would just like watch what the motocross guys were doing and then do almost exactly the same thing on the mountain bike. And yeah, that, that's just, I mean, considering I started doing wheelies and stuff on a bike in like the mid 1990s and here we are at 2021, like that's a long time to practice something over and over and over. So <laughs> It is. It's a very long time, but it's something that, you know, I think a lot of people miss on. They just go ride. I'm guilty of that sometimes for a lot of times. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I could totally try to learn more stuff, but I've kind of like lost the desire to learn more because it seems dangerous. Like I'll get hurt. and I'm kinda, I feel like I peaked in my riding about six years ago and I'm really okay with that. Yeah. So you discussed how you did some riding in college and down for, for, for downhill. How did you, what was your transition into the industry? Because you've had, you've worked at a handful of different companies within, within the industry. And so you kind of know that side of things. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, like going down to Cal Poly, like it's funny, Nyquist went to Cal Poly for one quarter and he got in on mechanical engineering, which is really hard to do. I wasn't, I didn't get in on that. I did an English major, but um, I went down there and he was driving back and forth to the Bay Area to ride the ramp club every weekend. I kind of was like, I'm not driving back and forth all the time. And then we were riding our BMX bikes, but pretty quickly noticed that the mountain bike club was huge and that there was tons of mountain biking in town. And then I went to the local, our, our, our home collegiate race, Parkfield, which is like two hours into the middle of cow country. There's no towns or anything close by. So you've got 300 college kids camping for a weekend in the middle of nowhere. And there's a rad downhill course, a short, but really fun, solemn course. Every night, it's a party with pixie bike racing, the short track, there's cross country. And that community, that scene of just like everyone being down to hang out and ride bikes together and have fun, that's what really got me motivated to stick with mountain biking. Because before that, I just thought it was a bunch of old software engineers that drove nice cars and had nice bikes and couldn't really ride them all that fast back in the demo forest or whatever. So, you know, I was a salty little BMX kids. Oh, these guys can't even do a wheelie. And <laughs> I mean, yeah. <laughs> Sounds terrible, but <laughs> when you're a kid, you know, you have your opinions. And then going to that, that race just opened my eyes as to like mountain biking can be really cool. There's lots of cool people that do this. There's a community here and it feels like my people. And that's how I got into it was seeing that. So it wasn't really like trying to be a, a pro racer. It was like, this is a legit scene that I like. And I mentioned that because going to those collegiate races, like that, that's a whole thing across the US. Collegiate racing is super legit. It doesn't get a whole lot of, of uh, coverage like in the media, but it's a legit series. And on the West Coast, like uh, between uh, UC San Diego, UC Davis, UC Santa Barbara, even UCLA, Stanford, Chico State, Humboldt State, UC Santa Cruz, they all had collegiate teams that were pretty, pretty legit, pretty decent. They'd all have home races that they'd put on. And it was cool. Like every weekend you could drive, it was like seven bucks for an entry fee. And it built a really good community. And because it's, you know, the same group of kids for four or five years. And then I got done, like, um, it's funny, I, I'm bringing that up because ever since I started working in the industry, I've always been around that same group of people. And today, like, I've got my friend from WTB, she's coming up here. I met her at a Parkfield race, you know, in like 2008 or whatever. And here we are, like one of the marketing managers that specialized, I met him at Parkfield and he was going to Cal Poly Racing Collegiate. And it, it's all, I mean, at Ibis, like, 
the, the, the lead engineer, Colin, I met him through the collegiate race scene as well. And so like that collegiate scene, that network there, like it's still continuing today. It's like a lot of the same folks. So anyhow, um, graduated school right at the, right at the worst peak or whatever of the economic recession of 2008. And I was like sending my resume into all these companies and, you know, trying to compete with folks that had 30 years work experience. And here's this like long haired, scruffy kid from Santa Cruz that's totally green. Like, who are you going to hire? So kind of just scrapped pretty hard for a while. And then I really wanted to get like a real job and not just work in like a, a retail or something. So I was trying to hold out for like a, an actual job. And then um, the, I, I got a family friend, knew the owner of Ibis. But before that, even um, I was working at Lazine, just super part time. Their website was like super rudimentary. And I had built my own website just to learn how to build websites. I was an English major, and there's a lot of gatekeeping in academia that really frustrates me. So, like, I really wanted to learn how to do like basic web design. I'm like, this is a critical skill we're going to need to know in a few years. And I kept getting told, no, you can't take these classes. You don't have a high enough GPA, and your major is not at all related to learning anything practical. You're an English major. So I kept getting shut down from graphics classes and from the web classes. So I was super frustrated and just went and did it, you know, just like my dad got me a copy of Dreamweaver. I had the whole Macromedia suite. Um, I had uh, Avid as a video editing software and all that. Like, I feel like I'm rambling, but sorry. <laughs> no, this yeah. is great information. This is, <laughs> this is actually really good because it, you know, it really tells people that you don't have to take a conventional path to get wherever you're going. No. And sometimes like, so there's this book by Ryan Holiday, The Obstacle is the Way. And like mm -hmm. getting told that you can't do that, that was such good motivation for me. Like I turned that into an opportunity to go learn how to do it. And like, it might've been kind of negative. I'm like, well, fine, I'll go learn on my own then. But like, that's the motivation I needed at that time in my life. So, you know, like, oh, yeah, I'm, trying to, I'm thinking back to some of those professors. And I remember at one point, one teacher that was teaching us the audiovisual stuff, he kept showing up late to class and I called him out on it and told him how much I was paying per minute for tuition at Cal Poly. And he was that late and that cost me that much money and I was paying to not learn anything. And I, I got a pretty big chip on my shoulder by the end there because I was so frustrated. <laughs> but that's like kind of what you need as well, you know, the kick in the pants to go make it happen. So anyhow, I got into design because I knew a little bit of web stuff. And then I worked there for a little bit and it wasn't the most healthy environment for me. And like, I didn't really know how to do a lot of web stuff also. I was trying to learn, but they needed someone better. And with the slowdown, sales were slowing down. It was kind of a challenge, but you know, I saw how things worked a little bit and I was like, oh, that's cool. And uh, that basically petered out by the summer. And then I was just like a dark time looking for work, finding nothing. I did like, I think it was like 70 some odd bike rides in a row without a shirt on, just like totally like going for it. <laughs> really weird goals. It's summertime in California. And finally, that IBIS opportunity popped up and it, was, it wasn't even warehouse work. It was like odd jobs. And then they were moving to the, from their old Scotts Valley location to their new one that they're still in, in Santa Cruz. And then, yeah, I was just super hungry for work. And so I'm like, I'll just do this, whatever. It's an opportunity. Gave it my all and like really committed to that. And then it was just like whenever an opportunity came up, jumped on it. And I remember working in the warehouse, like whenever the phone rang more than twice, I would just go ahead and answer it. Because I'm like, well, that's probably helpful. And just like, you know, like we didn't have an owner's manual for the bikes. There was like a card that said, go to the website. And this is like 2009. No one goes to websites in 2009. So I was like, well, I'll just write an owner's manual. And so I wrote this owner's manual and it was like terrible. 
But that inspired the owner to actually get a real owner's manual made. But like just all kinds of weird things like that, I would just go for it and try it and like made some really dumb, you know, some total mistakes as well. But I think that helped me get, I got promoted eventually into an inside sales job in like 2010 or 11. I'm bumping my microphone. It's going to sound fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) But the same thing, once the inside sales job happened, like then I kept jumping on opportunities. Like I started managing the Canadian reps just because I figured like, this is a great chance to like actually work with someone who has a different sales structure and see how they do things and try something new. And you know, like doing collections with bike shops, I would always have, like jump at the opportunity to do a collection call because that's hard. And like, I'm going to learn something doing that. So it was kind of like a, an MBA a little bit by just, you know, managing. I, I don't want to give away sales numbers, but I was half of IBA sales for like four years there. And oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. It was just Aaron and I and, like, you know, I'd answer like I, a few times I tallied my daily phone call thing. And on average, it was about 60 phone calls a day that I would answer. And if I didn't get to my email, it would usually be like 150 emails a day on top of trying to do outbound stuff and like contact new dealers, give tours of the headquarters and folks show up once in a while. Like once every few months, you take somebody like a distributor for a ride on the trails in Santa Cruz. So that was very, very full throttle. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, it, was, it wasn't very sustainable. So I ended up taking a job at WTB because I was going to be... I met my wife and was like, we wanted to get married and have a family. And it was like, there's no way I can have a family if I'm working, you know, 8.30 to 5.30 with two weeks vacation. And I'm using those two weeks to go to hit races all over the West Coast. So like I was racing, but it was very much like on the side, not anything official. I think Ibis ended up covering two or three race entries my last year I worked there. But like beyond that, I paid for everything out of my pocket. They did loan me their old demo van to drive to a handful of events. But that was also like, they much preferred to keep that demo van going to demo events than having me drive it to races. So it was like, anyhow, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I took the WTB job because it was more like, you know, had a ton of vacation, much more livable salary. And then like the stress level went way down. I really liked that WTB job. That was international sales. Um, it was, that was a fantastic opportunity. It was so hard to leave that job. And like, I still kind of wish I, I was still working there because I could still do probably a lot of YouTube while working there and just have the two jobs overlap. But yeah, uh, things took a different path and that's totally okay. So this might be jumping around a little bit, but how did you end up in Bellingham? Or when did you end up in Bellingham? Was that still during WTB or did you consciously make the move? Well, so my wife and I, we like, I met her in Santa Cruz and she was living, you know, 20 miles away in Los Gatos, right by where I went to high school. And we lived for a while at her place over there. And then we got a place in Santa Cruz and then she was trying to commute. And it was like, one of us was going to need to, like, if we lived in Santa Cruz, it was easy for me, but hard for her. So she was going to need to get a new job. And the, the jobs in Santa Cruz, there's not really a job market there. And we were looking at buying a house in Santa Cruz and it was like, the amount of debt we'd be in for this just crummy house with like just, you know, you're finding needles in the driveway, essentially. It was like, wait a second, like this is not like we could probably do better if we opened up our eyes a little bit. The WTB opportunity came up and that's up in Marin County. And so I'm all excited to go try someplace new. And like, you know, Marin's not a dream destination for anyone. Like the trails are amazing, but they're all illegal. 
I'm 100% mm-hmm. honest and transparent that I love riding illegal trails. If folks want to ride illegal trails, I support them 100%. And I think it's important that we have, like if you want to ride something and it's not allowed and you do want to ride it, if you don't break the, the rules and go ride it, you'll never get allowed access to it. If you don't stand up and push a little bit, you'll never get it. So I try, I, like when I do my part and I'm riding my illegal stuff that I love, I try to do it responsibly. You know, that's why I never post anything from an illegal trail on the internet. That's why I never comment about a location when I see something illegal. So I think you can do it as responsibly as you can. But in Marin, it's like less than 10% of the trails there are open to mountain biking. But what's worse is the people you bump into on the trails that'll just yell insults at you, like the meanest things you'll ever heard. And it's just like, wow, this is, this is gnarly. But the riding is great. <laughs> so we had almost two years there. My wife got a ticket when she was like eight months pregnant, riding this 200-yard long single-track path connecting two neighborhoods. And we're just like, this is ridiculous. And then we're trying to buy a house. And it's like, we can't even afford to buy a house here with both of us working full-time. Plus, we're going to have this kid. We want to hang out with this kid. So we started looking at uh, where is there good legal riding that we don't need to worry about tickets and where are houses not as expensive as California. Turns out that's everywhere. So (laughs) yeah, Uh, my sister and her husband have been living in Bellingham for a few years. We'd already visited them with our bikes once or twice. So we're like, well, Bellingham totally makes sense. We went to Asheville, North Carolina and checked out Asheville thinking that might be a destination. We also had family down in Florida. Um, my wife's sister lived like 10 minutes from Alafaya and we could ride from her house to Alafaya. And then her mom's house backs up to the Santos trails in Ocala. So we rode around there and we're like, yeah, not quite into Florida. Rode Asheville, really weren't into that riding at all. And then the humidity was, was tough for like a, a very pregnant woman. So <laughs> we ended up thinking like, well, Bellingham, at least we have my sister and her husband. It's way easy to get back to California. It's close to Canada. And when we were in Bellingham, we kept meeting dozens and dozens of people that had moved there from North Carolina. So we're like, well, okay. (laughs) So we contacted a real, like we're sitting on the couch in August one day, August 2016. And we're like, because it's hard to get a loan if you're on disability. And for my wife's leave from work for her pregnancy, for maternity leave, it would count as disability. So we're like, well, Looking back for when she could leave, that means we need to have a like close on a loan for a house in about, oh, next Monday. So we had like one weekend to fly to Bellingham. We looked at 30 houses and we're like, well, none of these houses are going to be perfect, but this is available now. We found one that's, you know, very close to the trails, went for it. And we still had our California incomes and all that. So we were able to qualify for a loan and pulled it off, but we couldn't. We let it sit vacant for like three months because we couldn't actually... I didn't even tell WTB yet that we had pulled this off. And I was thinking that maybe I could work from home because they were like, sometimes some employees did that. And there was a history of previous employees working remotely. And I figured between Kona, uh, Transition, and there's a few other smaller companies up here too. Now Evil Bikes is here too. I figured I could figure something out. So... Yeah, we went for it. And uh, WTB ended up agreeing to keep me on as long as I worked remote. And then uh, my wife didn't work for the whole first year we were up here. And yeah, we sent it, made it happen. So that whole 2017, I worked for WTB while living up here. Then my wife got found a job. And then it was just, you know, two working parents trying to also hang out with a kid a lot. We ended up making the decision to have me step back from WTB and See if I could turn making videos into somewhat of a job. 
Yeah, that's where I was going to go next. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, man. Yeah. So you're transitioning into being a content creator and general really good spokesperson for, for mountain biking on YouTube. How'd that? You know, the whole like, for me, like riding, I never really was a pro rider. I was always an employee somewhere and like working full time. And I would go and race, but it was never like anything super serious. I never had really sponsors that revolved around racing. We ended up forming a little bit of a race team. But yeah, I ended up having like, I got like a couple sponsorship offers kind of at the end of all that. And I was like, well, maybe, maybe there is a little something there. Maybe I could try to talk to sponsors because it just wasn't worth it. Like sponsors would usually like, here's a bike. And like, I already work at a bike company. Oh, here's bike parts. Well, then I have to ride just that bike part. I could walk downstairs to the OEM test cabinet and have my pick of whatever product I needed to use more or less. And I could try lots of stuff. So it just seemed so limiting to have an agreement. But yeah, uh, we made a couple of videos and they ended up doing really well. This is like 2014. And then um, in 2016, I broke in my pelvis a second time, but was healing up and we wanted to make another video. And I remember brands all convinced that videos don't sell product and that it's not worth the money to go make a video. And like, you know, I wasn't, I was trying to just have my airfare covered and maybe my food covered. I wasn't going to make a dime on any of this. So all the bunch of sponsors pulled out at the last minute and it was like, well, maybe I can just core, like call up all my own personal sponsorship guys and talk to all of them and have them all pitch in a little bit, like even less than they originally were going to do. And then kind of crowdfund it amongst various sponsors and then post it somewhere that's not like, because we've been posting stuff just to like the Ibis account or the Kitsbo account. So I was like, well, what's more neutral? I guess I have a personal YouTube channel we could post it to. And like, I had never even thought that was a possibility. Like I was pretty clueless in 2016. But then we did that Telluride video that way. And it got plenty of traction and worked. And then from that success, I was able to get, um, I made plans for four videos in 2017. And this is all like what I call the look at me videos, like watch me ride somewhere. And like, I'm not much of a, Hey, look at me, everyone. Like I'm kind of, I'd rather just do my thing and hang out and not be someone like, I'm not looking for more attention. And that's been kind of like a, that's been a struggle for me with this whole, like, I think uh, Phil Metz is kind of the same way. When I was chatting with Phil, we had kind of similar attitudes that we're not trying to be the center of attention at a party or whatever. So it's kind of odd when we're like trying to do this social media thing and yell, look at me from the top of the mountain. But anyhow. <laughs> well, the message is good though. I mean, you guys are putting a good message out there, you know, so it's, it's not really about you. It's about the stuff you're showing. Yeah, it's kind of both though, which is weird. Like, you know, you do more personal content and folks love it, but you can't do just that. So anyhow, I was doing those four big fancy look at me videos. And then I kind of realized if I started making a YouTube channel, like my friend Nate was doing, um, Nate Hills, he does like uh, ride along GoPro videos all over the country. And I knew him from the racing side and seeing what he was doing, he came through Bellingham, we did a ride together. And all of a sudden I had a bunch more subscribers. And like the money was so minimal. I never took it that serious. But I was like, you know, if I had more of a YouTube channel, then these big videos would already have like a running start when I post them. And so going into 2018, um, kind of the same thing, crowdfunded amongst a bunch of sponsors, some big videos. And then that's when I hit up Jensen. And like, this is so backwards from how you should do YouTube. But 
you know, like kind of like back to that theme of scrapping, you know, like here's the obstacle. You're not supposed to be working 40 hours a week anymore. You're supposed to be hanging out with your kid a lot more. And maybe you could work 12 to 15 hours a week. Well, that's a very big challenge to like get any kind of income from that small time, you know, allotment or whatever. So yeah, I started selling off old bikes. I started buying camera gear and hiring filmers on like an hourly or daily basis to use my gear because that would then be cheaper than hiring them to use their cameras and started to figure out how to edit my own stuff again. And But then the Jensen thing came in because I was like, how can I actually have some income outside of these bigger projects? And very quickly, the bigger projects turned like zero profit, but they were they would bring you know more eyeballs to the channel. So... Yeah, the whole Jensen thing. I'm like, well, I got to prove to these brands that videos do sell product. And one of the biggest secrets in the bike industry, and people always wonder, like, why are these brands, like, like right now, still to this day, brands don't really sell product to consumers. They sell product to bike shops and to distributors. So like a lot of folks don't realize that bike brand A doesn't really care about marketing to the consumer that effectively because they're not selling to that consumer. It's selling to the bike shop. So what does that bike shop purchasing agent, what do they actually look at? So that's how a lot of the marketing actually happens. So trying to prove that consumers like that, you know, videos will sway a consumer's purchasing decisions or whatever, that started things with Jensen. And they were like, we really think this could work and got going. And yeah. And then the big problem that this all creates is you're supposed to make videos that have some inherent like help to the viewer, like that have some kind of benefit to the viewer that you want to watch. Like it can be entertaining and maybe high performance riding is entertaining, but you can't make every video be jumping off a cliff. It's not sustainable. So I try to do some product stuff and like it's such a fine line between what's helpful and what's too salesy. And I had like this sales background. So I'm like, I wasn't, I often went way too salesy, but you know, you kind of got to learn by doing and don't make too many apologies because you try the best you can. So yeah. Yeah. One of the videos, I think it was a video that really caught my attention from you. And it's partially because an area that I frequently go to is Bentonville, Arkansas. And the video that you did where you started out in Little Rock, I believe, mm-hmm. and then went up to Bentonville. And, and I think it was really when I saw you manualing berms. Like, holy <laughs> cow, <laughs> this is pretty rad. And I'd already <laughs> known the location. Yeah. I've been to Bentonville at that point. I think you might have done that in what, 20, 2018 potentially? Yeah, it was late 2018. Yeah, so I had already been to Bentonville at least a half a dozen times at that point. How far you is know? that for you from Wisconsin? It's 10 hours from where I live. Okay, is that like the closest spot that you love to go visit? Um, so Bentonville for us, because we're further north, it's really good for the shoulder seasons. It's good for late fall rides, early spring rides, when it's just typically not as good where we live. Okay. And then in the summertime, really, I really like to head north. It's it's no secret to anyone who knows me or has spent maybe even five minutes with me that Copper Harbor is my favorite place to go. Ah, the UP, right? Yeah. And that's about seven hours north of me. Copper Harbor and Marquette, both are about seven hours. Cool. Up in the UP and I love heading up there midsummer, you know? I've really wanted to head up there for years and it's just like one of the many spots I want to go visit. Yeah. And it's, it's not an easy place to get to. It just isn't, you know? And so... yeah. Oh man. That's where, you know, when we talked when I talked to Angie Weston, you know, she's mm-hmm. been to Copper Harbor a couple of times for doing women's clinics up there. And she says it herself. Like it's it's I mean it's it's a dead end, it's the dead end of a dead end. <laughs> you know? 
That's so cool though. So, I mean, there's 90 people maybe that live in that community full time year round. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's tiny. Yeah. You know, but it's, you know, so, so yeah. So Bentonville, when I saw you in Bentonville or saw that video, like that really resonated with me knowing some of the players, like knowing Gary Vernon and some of the people that really pulled some stuff off there, you know, so that was really, that content really got me watching your content. Awesome. You know, man, that was right when I was trying to make a transition from, you know, yelling, Hey, everyone look at me to more like, I'd much rather learn about other people's stories. And like, personally, when I'm watching a video, if it's not some kind of a documentary with bikes, I turn it right off. Like, I could barely sit through half of the X Games real MTB edits. Like they were great and all, but it's like I'd so much rather hear someone talking about like like there's that video about the Canadian free riders getting up and going. That totally had me like I sat through all 45 minutes of that. Yeah. Like I'd much rather hear a story than just watch riding. So, I was trying to pivot to more of that style. And then um Best Western actually made that that Bentonville video happen. Like I had my sponsors set up for a bunch of big videos and then the best Western deal came up and they wanted to have feature a hotel in little rock and a hotel in Bentonville and riding in little rock, you know, like, I don't, I think there's more, but we didn't really find a whole lot, but we found a little something. And that kind of was like, you know, if you hit up locals and ask to hear about their trails and what they've been working on, they're so excited to show you and showcase their, you know, their handiwork. And then I started thinking like, maybe this could help them get more of whatever they need, like whether it be membership, people to come and ride there so they can show the tourism department that it's legit and they should get a grant. Like maybe like there's so many different things that communities and trail groups can need and got a platform. It's like, might as well try to help them a bit. So that's, that was kind of like the template for the local loam series was that Bentonville thing. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, it worked really good. Let's talk about your local loam series because you've done that in a handful of places and you've done it outside of the lower 48. Yeah, I went to Canada and went to Puerto Rico. I've got an episode from Mexico I need to publish. That's just aging on my hard drives. Oh, man. Yeah. Yeah, local home's fun. So that was the whole, this is right, right back to the beginning. So working in the industry, I was so frustrated that the way it was like mountain biking has been marketed. I kept seeing like when I was at WTB, like the marketing folks in WTB do a great job, but what they do and what they think is ideal is very different than what I think would be ideal with the whole marketing efforts. And I would love to see companies like the way Ibis and Santa Cruz have done like the Santa Cruz pay dirt initiative mm -hmm. that like, that's a great saying for it. I don't even know what the Ibis one is called. Um, but like that, I feel like that's a much more sustainable way to do your marketing. So Brands need to get their name out there and show what's going on. And if they can combine that in a way that raises some awareness for the advocacy challenges out there, I feel like it's a win-win. Some folks see that as like selling out the advocates. And sure, like you can have that opinion or whatever. But at the same time, like, should we just go back to ignoring them and not helping whatsoever? And like, there's all these resources that are going to be spent in marketing. Might as well do what we can to combine those up with some advocacy stuff. And if you stand for something like helping to sustainably grow more riding areas. That's a much better message than just saying like, this is the best bike end of discussion. I feel like there's more, I mean, there's a time and a place for that. Sure. But I feel like the more you can do that also give, gives back to the sport, it's just a much more sustainable model. So that's kind of where I came from with starting that local loam series. I need, I knew that I had a platform and I wanted to go tell some story. Like, None of them, I don't think any of those videos are that great with their storytelling, but just meeting locals and, you know, giving them a platform to shine and 
I'm not much of like a pro rider. Like I don't do crazy tricks or anything, but what I do best is like weird lines that people haven't really thought of on like regular trails and regular stuff. So that's pretty easy to move from location to location. Like I don't need the best trails to make a video that folks will like to watch. So I figured that's perfect for the whole local loam thing. Yeah. So yeah, I got that. Um, I actually got a lot, I actually lost a bunch of sponsorship because of that series. Cause it's so like, I know trail building is really critical, but it's very like, it's very popular right now to promote trail building. And the local loam thing is more about promoting advocacy and advocacy is super political. So you end up with a lot more negativity when you start promoting political stuff. Cause it's, you know, there's going to be opinions that go one way or the other. So it's been a real challenge promoting that series because you end up with a lot of naysayers that aren't happy with whatever advocacy group that had to make a decision. Like, you know, politics is the art of making decisions with big groups of people and you're never going to be able to satisfy everyone and advocacy is inherently political. So it's a challenging thing to use with, you know, with, with content creation. You just said a couple things there that definitely piqued my interest. One is I've never heard of selling out advocates because I don't know how that could actually happen. Two is people just get so negative and they like, ah, you're, you're, you're totally whoring them out. And like, I guess that could be possible. But the way I've been doing it, I, I don't feel I don't regret anything that I posted with the advocacy groups whatsoever. But people have that opinion. I'll let them have it. But yeah, it's I'm not making like I feel like it's OK. <laughs> so I'd say by far the majority of what we have for access for mountain biking is on public land. Mm-hmm. Whether it's, you know, national owned land, BLM, national forest, local, you know, local municipality land, state forest land, county land, whatever. It's it's all public, right? So I've spent a lot of time in my community advocating for access and advocating for funding. And I can tell you that most elected officials, I'd say nine point nine out of ten don't mountain bike. Oh, for sure. Right. (laughs) And so how, like we've used videos, like for example, BKXC came to lacrosse and rode last summer. Mm -hmm. I got messages from people that I didn't even know were paying attention to anything of mountain biking that are elected officials in my community saying that was a really awesome video. Oh, cool. You know? And so I don't, yeah, like they're elected to do a job by, by popular vote. So if you can get more of the population to really swing towards what we're trying to promote, they have to listen. Totally. Numbers matter. You know, and decisions with anything in life have to be made, you know, and and so the advocacy part to me is the most important part because you can't get to trail building without the advocacy side. Exactly. Yeah. And like the whole you know, honestly, around here, we ride more private land than public because there's so much logging, so much extraction based uh, economic drivers here in the Northwest. So a lot of our advocacies are working with timber companies to get access to those lands in between their harvests because the logging company is sitting on the land for 20 years in between harvests. So a bunch of people are riding bikes on it. That's fantastic PR. It almost helps a little bit because all of a sudden there's not like people living in the trees that it's like it's there's people, healthy people cruising through, keeping it way more maintained. So it's a pretty positive relationship. And that comes from a good advocacy group that's willing to, you know, that's mature enough to have that conversation with a timber company and be taken seriously. So Yeah. So I really appreciate the local loam series. And 
the advocacy pushing because you can't, you know, whether it is with the timber company or a private, we, you know, we have some land here in our area that is on private land through easement or whatever. And there are mm-hmm. other locations around the country. In fact, I think that's also a really good model because you have less red tape to cut through. You don't have to deal with a lot of the political side of things. Totally. I think we should have both like the public and then the, the private. It's just like, and there's more opportunities right now to grow with the private around here because it's so much faster, less red tape, like you were saying. Yeah. And you have the potential to connect public land then. Yes. It's not always, you know, interconnected. So how do you get from point A to point B with trail system A to trail system B and have some kind of traverse between those two without getting on public roads? And we try to avoid asphalt if we can. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah, think so I really is, appreciate your local home series. Thank you. I think the thing about whoring out the advocacy groups is different if it's an individual promoting the groups versus a brand. And I kind of like, I don't think about corporate brands very much because I don't really take them very seriously. So if a brand doesn't have a face behind it, that's like publicized, then I'm kind of like, eh, I don't even really listen to their marketing. It rarely ever speaks to me. But once a brand has like the CEO or the actual founder owner being their face and like talking about it, like I created this brand for XYZ reason, this is what I stand for. I could like, I could see how it would be kind of whoring out an advocacy group if you have a big corporate company just promoting them and it looks like no involvement on their part. But if it's actually like the owner of the company is meeting and riding with the advocates and then at the end of the video, it's a call to action. Like if you want to ride these trails, support this group right here that is way more healthy. So I could see how it could be done inappropriately, but so I understand those, that critique or whatever, but um, yeah, it's inter- I think it's, I would love to see more athletes help promote and work with their advocacy groups. There's always the worry that everyone's going to hit up the advocates and it's going to be too much for them, but none of the groups have had that problem <laughs> thus far. Yeah. Yeah. And when that happens, then you, you know, you bring in more advocates, you know, when people want, <laughs> When people want a trail in their backyard, you need a person to champion that. And maybe it's that person that wants that trail in that backyard. Totally. Man, yeah. Oh, man. So it's tough because making content on YouTube or whatever, you need something interesting or you need to help people somehow through an entertainment value. And it's so hard to make advocacy be like clickbait, you know? Like you really need clickbait. Like I, I struggle with writing clickbait. Like I try my best and it's still like, People tell me, oh, you could have been way more clickbaity with that. And so, yeah, it, it's really hard. So that local loam series kind of was challenging for me because I thought it did great, but I had to deal with, you know, competing against like, I, I'll do a video about flat pedals versus clips. That'll get triple the views of something that'll take months of work. That's a local loam video. And I get, you know, sponsors saying like, oh, why don't you just do more videos to get more views? Isn't that better? And it's like, oh. You don't understand. <laughs> you have to have yeah, both, sure. really. I mean, so anyhow, that's been, it's really hard to promote advocacy. It's really, really hard. Yeah. But it, yeah, it's, it's something that I don't think you could ever do enough of it. And yeah. I don't know. I, I can't see a time and you never say never, but I can't see a time where we're going to have too much access. <laughs> <laughs> too much. Ac- oh man. Yeah. I, it gets hard to decide some days where to go ride, but that's an awesome, awesome struggle. You know, I mean, yeah, Bellingham is obviously a good place where you have a lot of access. The community I live in is starting to get to where we're trending in that direction. But to get that, to show that to other communities that have little to no access, Mm -hmm. you know, so, so yeah. So let's talk about trail communities. You obviously live in Bellingham, but you've, you've traveled. What are some of the ingredients that you like to see in a trail community that makes a great trail community? 
You know, um, it's got to be a place that's a little bit, it's a good mix of blue collar with some grittiness as well. A place that's not afraid to put in the work and make things happen. If it's somewhere that's like, I don't know, like the people there have to be willing to put in the work to make it happen. If it's already there with great access, sometimes it's just too easy and folks won't see the reason to keep it going. So it's, Sometimes it's, it's, it's interesting how you really got to have just like that willingness to work and get it done first and foremost. Um, some of the best trails start out as illegal trails and then get adopted in. So it's got to be a place where some folks are willing to take those risks and just start building that stuff. Because if you don't have any progressive trails, you're never going to get them. But if you have like a lot of my videos have been about stories when a trail is unsanctioned, but super popular and then it blows up and then they want to take it out, then everyone's outraged. Then all of a sudden, you know, there's an actual thing there. There's an advocacy group that makes it legit. So, yeah, I think it's uh, a community that's willing to get things done, whether it's official or not. I think that's pretty important. I had a few notes about this. Um, let's see. Yeah, one community that I haven't been to and I'm going to go to, and I've said it in multiple episodes, is Knoxville. And I think you just described huh. how Knoxville is getting stuff done as far as like, you know, and uh, I talked about it a little bit with, with Jeff Lenowski and it's to him and, and, and to me also, it's like a community that has really has soul, you know? Yeah. And, you know, I also think to have a really good mountain bike scene, you need to have mountains. I mean, <laughs> you can build all the, you can build all these fancy trails on flatlands, but it's never going to be as rad as a place that's in legit mountains. So I do feel kind of strongly with that. Like mountain biking is always best in the mountains. You can kind of make a pretty good imitation of it if you don't have mountains. But yeah, I've always been kind of partial to the terrain. Like it can be a, like, you know, not, I just think like natural trails will always help keep the community going. And if it's built for mountain bikes and just like lots and lots of flow trails, I kind of feel like I don't, I've never seen that work quite the same to keep the same group going. Whereas if it's a lot of natural trails mixed with some of the the more flowy stuff, then you end up with a more diverse community. You don't lose the better riders that are seeking elevation. So. Yeah, for sure. Having that good mix of, cause you know, obviously flow can be fun. Flow get flow is like the gateway yes. for some people to even get into mountain biking. Totally. But I talk to a lot of people and I'd say one in every five people say they really want to ride flow all the time. One in five, 20%. You know, and the rest of them, while they like aspects of flow and flow can be a lot of fun, they still talk a lot about, like, if you ask somebody what's their favorite trail, it usually reverts over to that natural aspect of, of trails. Yeah. You know, so, yeah. My favorite riding in the state is like hard to come by. I really like trails that aren't mountain bike trails <laughs> per se. Like I like, and it's like, it seems like so little to ask. Like, let's just not build a berm. Let's just not build a jump. Let's just leave it. It's okay. And then all of a sudden you come back and there's like the roots have a jump over them. The corner has all bermed up and it's just, yeah. It's such a first world thing to complain about, but it's, <laughs> it's pretty hard around here to find trails that aren't so manipulated by the shovel. Yeah. Let's make it a little awkward. Yeah. Like my favorite trails have the least amount of stuff done to them. And yeah. So what, in your travels, are there any communities that stick out to you outside of Washington or maybe even outside of the West Coast that that really kind of you remember it a lot or something you really make a point to get back to at some point? You know, I just one just kicked in my head, but um, 
The one I was thinking of at first was Mexico City. The scene in Mexico City was so strong. And the guys down there were kind of afraid to form a formal advocacy group. Just because if you end up with a large group of organized people, you get some safety issues there in terms of the local, like the cartels and all that. Like you kind of don't want to be seen as like a mover and a shaker. So that was interesting. But the mountain bike scene was enormous. Like I probably would see, you know, 150 cars at the trailhead. Half of them have the latest carbon fiber bike. The other half are e-bikes. And it's just like, wow, this is really happening big time. So Mexico City was and like, that's a great destination to ride because the airport's the lowest thing. And that's at 7,500 feet. So we were riding around nine, 10,000 feet. And the top of the hill was over 12. So and like Mexico City was awesome. Um, when I was living in Spain, it was this very small, a small city called Alicante. And then I was living like 20 minutes inland in San Vicente. And my friend turned into my friend. At first, I just was a random guy that owned a bike shop. I went and met him. And uh, turns out he had won the climber's jersey a couple times at the Vuelta de Murcia. And it was a former pro road racer. And so he got pretty into mountain biking, had a few bike shops. And he was organizing Saturday rides from the shop. His kid got really into BMX and was a multi-time world champion when he was like pretty young. And then his son went on to work, race some World Cup downhills and everything. But they had a really, really legit BMX track in the center of town. And it's not like, like West Coast BMX tracks where it's like closed private property unless it's an official practice. Like you could go ride this track whenever you want. And they had actual races. So there's like a good scene of people that would always ride the BMX track. But then my friend that ran that bike shop, he had bought some property outside of town and built some trails there to have like an official spot people could always go ride. And then there's just more social trails all throughout the hills from there. So it was a pretty big scene that like a lot of it, he had just kind of got going like, and it wasn't like he wanted to go ride his bike. He wanted people to ride with. And then for the shop, it made sense to, you know, it it all totally made sense because shop ride leaves from the shop, comes right back to the shop and totally customers and all that. So yeah, I mean, that was a great local scene. Yeah. Let's talk about your local scene a little bit. We've had a handful of people from Bellingham on. We have a couple of uh, former uh, residents of the community I live in that have moved to Bellingham and made Bellingham their home. And so I have a little bit of connection there. Um, but what are your, you know, what do you really like about Bellingham for as far as that riding part of the community in your eyes? I just like that it's family friendly. Uh, that's my main thing. Like the, most of the riding I do here is, is on Galbraith. And uh, like I ride with my kid quite a bit. And she's got friends that rides ride bikes here. So I just love how family friendly it all is and how often you'll see groups of kids out on a ride together. Yeah, I mean, it's like kind of like a flywheel and like you start getting it rolling a little bit. People start hearing about it and it keeps going faster and faster. It's hard to keep it going, but once it's going, it, it keeps going big time. So the scene's really built up a lot. And now that it's the size that it is, we keep getting more opportunities to build more trails. So there's a really cool plan to have single track all around Lake Whatcom. And we keep losing stuff because there's a lot of timber harvest right now. But at the same time, there's going to be a lot more trail in the future too. So it's pretty cool that way. I definitely dream of moving to the Cascades to be able to ride like more mountainous, more natural trail more often. So I do have those dreams. But for in terms of like where can you have a good family experience? Bellingham School, because it's a big city. It's like 90,000 people now. Oh, wow. That's not huge, but yeah, it's a good sized place. Big enough to have everything you need. 
and convenient. Uh, <laughs> sort of. Uh, it's still kind of small townish, but um, yeah, uh, it's a cool spot. Like, I don't see myself leaving anytime in the near future. Um, Sedona is the other spot where I end up pretty often. So I think doing the bounce back and forth, Sedona, Bellingham will continue for a while. Sedona is, is really cool in its own way. Yeah. Yeah. As we were talking about early on, I, I, I took a quick, quick trip to Sedona um, back in February. And it's something I'm going to do more frequently as well as the future rolls on. Cool. Especially, especially when it's wintertime here. Yeah. You know, and you can get and still get some good riding in in the desert. I could almost see myself investing in a house in Sedona bef- like before Bellingham because you can live out of your van pretty comfortably in the summer. But in the wintertime, when it's really cold, it'd be nice to be down in Sedona. So might as well have the house there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. For sure. What do you have going on in 2021? Do you have any, any work that you want to talk about or, or any other any projects you have coming online? Uh, like, share, and subscribe. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I got nothing. Um, I'm, I'm just working on more stuff on the internet. Nothing legit that would be good to you know shout out or whatever. So, like, I, I would love to organize group rides, but I've taken so many people to the emergency room that I don't want, like, for liability reasons, I don't want to do that. Um, especially now that, like, yeah, that we're we have a house and a family and all that. I don't ever want to get sued by someone's because, like, it wouldn't be an individual suing; it'd be their healthcare provider being like, "Oh, this guy promoted this ride on social media. Let's go after this guy." Yeah. So yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really afraid of organizing anything like that. And then um, I have some video projects coming up. So that's that's really it. Yeah. One of the bikes you seem to be. I know now that you're with Jensen USA. Well, that's you're- an interesting one. Someone mentioned like. I got so much flack the other day. I posted a video. It was my second ride on this Yeti. And like, I love that bike. I just rode it down here to the office today. I rode it. I've been riding it constantly because I really freaking like it. And I had no idea I would like it that much too. Um, it's really kind of like the altitude. I was like, went into it like, eh, I'll try this. And then it was like, whoa. But my deal, with, like, my deal with Jensen, it's, they're technically an advertiser, not a sponsor. But because we have such a good partnership, I call them a sponsor. But um, like with the FTC guidelines, you're supposed to disclose when someone, like when you have a paying relationship with someone, when they're a sponsor. And then like, so I just, with Jensen, I technically have ads in the videos where I do a call to action. And that's what our relationship is. They're not technically a sponsor, but yeah, we're such a good partner. I call them a sponsor because that sounds a lot better than advertiser. But yeah, that's been fantastic to actually see the traction of like what works and all that. And, you know, it's, it's so funny because I'm a terrible bike reviewer. Like, not that many folks ride like me. So the stuff that I can't stand, a lot of folks love. Like the HD3, like it was a good bike, not my favorite bike. And so many folks tell me it's their absolute favorite bike. And I'm like, really? Ah, so that's, that's a tough one. But I've also realized that it's way more entertainment and not so much actual factual ride review info they're trying to get. So that is nice because it's a much bigger license for creativity and like like they kind of just want to hear what like I get so interested hearing folks talk like, you know, when you live in the bike industry for whatever, 15 years and you, you're in it all the time, when you want to escape, you're not looking at more bike media. So like my hobby is dirt bikes. And I'm so curious to hear what the top dirt bikers say about various bikes. Like when a top pro is buying and trying different bikes to see what they want to race the next year, that to me, that is so interesting because Often, like you, you know, everyone's oh, he has a con- had a contract last year with X Y Z. He's mad at them, so he's going to bash them. 
like there's all these little conspiracy theorists, but I find it fascinating because I think they are being pretty genuine. And especially when you see them like actually stick with it and race with a brand, it's like, ah, yeah. cool. So I get like, I don't know. I think there is some people do get the entertainment reasons. Like they get pretty interested in it, which is kind of cool. But then I get flack. Like you need to disclose more that you have these sponsors and your videos have no weight because you're sponsored. And it's like, ah, not really. Like I basically speak the truth. So anyhow, it's been super fun. I really love that opportunity. For sure. And this is going to go way into the weeds and way away from trails. Yeah. But I just, I don't know if, I think I must, I must have read it yesterday because I do follow motorsports as well, or at least supercross and motocross. The Tomac Yamaha thing? That's where I was going. <laughs> you got it. I, I read all like nine or 10 pages on the vital thread about it. Just was, <laughs> like, it kind of makes sense, but it's also a little bit of a head scratcher. It's cool. Yeah. So that'll be interesting. I don't, is it, I don't know if it's official or if it's just rumor. I think it's still rumor, but I can see it happening. I mean, crazier things have happened. Oh, <laughs> yeah, for sure. There's crazier things that have happened in that industry. Where, I mean, the craziest thing I think that happened, which is really going to date me and maybe not even, you might not even remember it, but was when Cannondale got into motorsports. It's crazy how like they were so on track, but they so missed at the same time, like aluminum frame, fuel injected, four stroke, three yeah. things that were totally revolutionary for the time. And now look, that's exactly what everyone's riding. Yeah. Go figure. I mean, I remember going the closest motor, the closest motocross uh, outdoor national to me is Millville, mm -hmm. Minnesota, which is about an hour and a half away from my place. And I remember when Cannondale had a rider, in fact, it might've been, <laughs> I'm not, I can't, don't, do not quote me on that. I can't remember. It was late nineties. Yeah. But he was the only person on the track that had a four stroke. And so he totally knew when he was coming because it sounded uh -huh. so much different than the two strokes. Oh man, they just bit off so much with that project. And then it sounds like there are some management issues and like some prototypes worked better. They had to cut some corners and. And they went into ATVs and motorcycles at the same time. Yeah. So they maybe should have, I don't know where this is total, you know, outside speculation about that, but yeah. that was definitely a head scratcher as far as stuff that went way weird. That's tied to the bike industry in, a, in one way, but also the motorsports industry, which. You could also argue that Tomek is also with his oh, father. Oh, Tomek has, you know, I've never actually met Eli or anything, so I, I, but I've heard secondhand that he's a ripping mountain bike rider. And when I was in Durango, I was so tempted to try to like go through some friends that are, that, that know the Tomek's very well to try to get hooked up and go for a ride. But we had to focus on doing, doing a video first and foremost. That was a super fun project, riding vintage bikes with the old collector dudes that totally shred. That was, that was so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about your uh, sponsors and supporters. Um, this is an area that, you know, one of my other guests, Jeff Lenowski kind of went, he went off on a tangent on and, and I think it speaks volumes to what, you know, he picks who, who he rides mm -hmm. for because he really likes their products and he's not pushing their product just because they're giving him a paycheck or he's sold out to them or whatever you want to, however you want to label it. And actually sure. when I watch your videos, especially with PNW, that's how, it, that's how it is to me. Like, dude, those guys are so legit. The way they're marketing, like, I wish that Aaron would come out and put himself as the face of the company a little bit more. But he hasn't shied away from uh, video interviews with me at all, which is great. But like, so right now, all of us athletes are all losing big time. And we're not losing. What we're losing to is Instagram and Facebook and Google ads. Because you can spend your, your ad buy with any of those big tech companies and you're going to get a way better return on investment than you'd ever get 
with actual athletes. Like, so the thing is with actual athletes, it's so much harder to track that. And with affiliate sales through Jensen, I can track quite a bit of it, but still like that only catches what, like 20% or whatever. So it's so hard to tell. Whereas Google ads, you can see exactly who's clicked through, who's bought what. And so it's, it's impossible for us to compete with it. So sponsorship is really more based on, we say it's egonomics rather than economics. So it's more like when it's a brand, it's more like a, if a brand is actually stoked on you personally and on what you're producing and they want to be associated with that, then they make that ad buy. It's not really based on your numbers whatsoever. And like realizing that it really makes sense, like how sponsorship relationships work. But P&W, they totally like it's legit. Like if, if those guys are stoked on what someone's doing, they'll offer to work with them or whatever. And they've built their whole marketing based around athletes. So I don't know what they spend with, but they sponsor a bunch of folks and they have been growing incredibly fast because they found this model and they stuck with it. And it's super legit. They, they definitely do social ads, but yeah, I'm really like, I try to tell other sponsors, like, look what PNW is doing. Like they focus on athletes. Like don't just sponsor me, please go sponsor five other athletes. And I promise it'll be <laughs> a really good return. And you'll not only feel better about it, but you'll create a much more long lasting investment than just some ad that gets seen whatever times. Yeah. And they have a good product. Yeah. That's important too. <laughs> I mean, it, it is super important. I mean, to ride the stuff that you really want to ride that you would buy anyways, even if you had to. And in this day and age, a lot of stuff's really good. There's stuff that I don't really want to ride per se, but I like, like a Fox 34 fork was not my favorite thing to ride for a long time. Um, the most recent one surprised me because it got way better. It got a lot stiffer. My biggest complaint is that it would flex left, right, and also fore aft. So I was not super thrilled on that. And like single ply tires, I can't really handle single ply tires still to this day. So like there's stuff out there that I don't really want to deal with. And that's more riding style related. But there's not really a whole lot of super crummy stuff out there, which makes it easier. But I'm only down to three sponsors now. So, so what are your three sponsors? Uh, well, I call Jensen a sponsor because there's such a long-term commitment there. Um, and then PNW and Industry9. Shimano helps me out with some product, but they don't actually sponsor me. So, Yeah. And Shimano, you know, I made the switch and I don't, I'm not... Technically, I'm not sponsored by anybody. I, the show is sponsored um, by our local bike shop and, and I do a lot of work with that local bike shop, which then in turn puts me on Trek bikes. But I made the switch at the end of 2020 20 of our fleet of bikes, both mine and, and um, other people that live in the same house to go all Shimano wow. you know, from SRAM, mm -hmm. you know, and I like it. I, I, I've always been on Shimano for road stuff when I do do road riding, but it was, I do like riding Shimano, especially now that they've really upped their game from just Dior to XTR. You know, mm -hmm. when people ask about getting into a lower, lower price point for a mountain bike, I always say, look for SLX or Dior. Yes. Yes. You know? Oh my goodness. I don't want to bash SRAM. I think SRAM is awesome and we have to have them because sure. without SRAM, we would not have one by drivetrains. I mean, they are the biggest pusher for Shimano to innovate. Yes. Once SRAM's winning out big time, then all of it, like it takes... One of the former product managers at Shimano was saying like, Shimano is kind of like a huge monster. The, very bottom of a lake and you're throwing pebbles into that lake and you drop all these pebbles and nothing happens. But once in a while, a pebble hits that monster and it erupts out of the lake and something amazing happens. 
So I'm so glad we have SRAM doing as well as they are, which is like they have tons of OE spec right now. And I think they're really pushing Shimano to keep going. I think that's awesome because I like both their stuff, but the, it's been cool seeing that relationship over the years. Yeah. And this isn't new news, but I'll, I'll be interested to see how it goes. But SRAM just bought Time Pedals and yeah. that'll be interesting. I've always been a, uh, not always, but for probably 10 years now, I've been a fan of Time Pedals, you know? Okay. And, so it'll be interesting. And that company, I think, has kind of gone through a bunch of different changes as far as like not having stable ownership time, that is. And so it'll yeah, be interesting yeah. to see how that takes off. I, I thought Look, the French road bike company, owned them. Yeah, they're, they're not tied together on the pedal side. Huh. They're tied. And it's weird because, yeah, they're not tied together. And I don't even know if, yeah, they're not tied together at all. Um, they were previously owned by, Rosignol. Okay. And then, and I don't know all of it, but a good friend of mine here in lacrosse for a while was running time USA out of his, out of one of his spare bedrooms here in lacrosse, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they kept their product Jeez. in, and this is really going inside, but they kept their product, I think mainly out in park city. Okay. Or not park city, Salt Lake city, but that area. Yeah, there's a lot of three PLs in Salt Lake. And I think there's some good tax structures there. It's also good liability stuff. So like Utah is one of the few places where I consider having another riding clinic one day. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, but yeah, so that's kind of how I, how I got on time pedal. So it'll be interesting to see what SRAM does with them if they do anything at all or, yeah. you know, all my friends over at SRAM ride Shimano pedals. <laughs> well, maybe they'll have to change now. Yeah, I know. I know. It's funny. I, had, I haven't ridden clipless. I've ridden clipless on an e-bike once or twice. And then I've had one ride on clips again since I broke my pelvis in 2019. And wow, like it's, man, I never, I, I, I struggled so hard to ride flat pedals for years. And now after like finally committing, like it took a life-changing injury to make the commitment, but I couldn't believe how easy it was to ride clips. Like the waterfall climb in, in Phoenix, I think I did it eight times in a row on clips after spending an hour there getting it twice with flats a few weeks before. And it's just like, wow, this is, <laughs> but then like, I actually felt uncomfortable on the downhills. It was just like, so like I, for years it was completely 180 and yeah. And at this point I'm basically done with clips, which I never, ever thought I would say it's, it's wild. Yeah. Well, I mean, everybody, especially if you spend so much time on it, it definitely is a, is a, is a special skill set that, probably more people and I'm super guilty of it should at least work into their skills. I need to do another, like, so I do these tutorials and I put them on Patreon only. Cause I think it's the one thing of value that, you know, that's people actually pay a little bit for. And one of my goals is to publish more of this stuff publicly and have more content that's actually helpful. So I need to do a video about how to ride flat pedals. Cause it's a really, I did one already, how to ride one flat pedals through the rocks on my Patreon page, but I need to do a public one. Cause that would be so much fun. We'll talk about your Patreon page quick before we close this thing up so people know that you have a Patreon page and what that what that does for them and you. Oh, I hate that word Patreon though because usually they're just like digital tip jars like, oh, I'll say your name in my video. But yeah, it's I post these riding tutorials there one a month and I only put them on Patreon. And I'll, I'll, sometimes I'll pull a little snippet from the tutorial and post that on Instagram that drives some traffic over there. But yeah, it's just riding tutorials. Like I post usually once a month. Sometimes I'll have like, if I have a sneak preview, like a rough draft for a video, I'll leak it to the patrons. 
And uh, I'll give away like my Jensen gift cards more often on Patreon than anywhere else. But yeah, it's it's just writing tutorials. And there's about, oh gosh, two dozen or so posted now that I've built over the last few years. So yeah, yeah check it out. Yeah. So you have anything, any advice or any wisdom that you'd like to close with before we uh, close this thing down? Uh, just be friendly on the trails. Talk to your fellow mountain bikers because you have more in common with them than you might think. Yeah. And fellow hikers. Yes, totally. Everyone on the trail, like especially the trail trail runners are always super stoked. And oh man, like even like the really negative hikers, I try, I, I usually just ring the bell helps so much. Like if they're saying something snotty and I'm ringing the bell, I don't even have to hear it because I'm ringing this ding dong. Ding yeah. Dong. The bell, <laughs> the bell came up actually specifically the timber bell came up in my last interview, which will be the next show that comes out with Christina Waite, who's an illustrator slash mountain biker out of the Seattle area. And that cool. actually pr- prompted me to reach out to Timberbell to get an interview with them to talk about their products specifically, because I, I, and I'm not shy to talk about this. I was, I used to be anti-Bell. Wow. I just, I didn't, and I've, I was like, I don't, if I can just be kind to hikers and kind of anticipate that they're coming and just say hi to them. And, and that was kind yeah. of my, that was my angle was just being really nice to, Everybody oh, it's I more important to speak to a hiker than to ring the bell. Yeah. But what I usually do is I'll speak first. And then like, you don't know if you're going to get a positive or a negative. But after I speak first, then I ring the bell. And I've just got a ding dong, like a very traditional bicycle bell. And it sounds so pleasant and like non-aggressive that it almost always like gets rid of any kind of tension. It's like, I'm not here to be a jerk. I'm here to be nice. And it's just like, yeah. So it's important. It's more important to speak to people than just ring your bell big time. Yeah. And that was, that was my angle. And then with COVID last year, trail use went way up across the world. Mm-hmm. So I kind of, I gave in, I'm like, okay, I'll try this Timberbell thing. The Timberbell, you can turn it on and off and it just dings as you're riding. Yeah. Which, which is a pretty nice feature actually. Yep. And since putting that on, I've had, I've never had a negative comment and people either just say hi, you know, like, cause you're saying hi, or they say, thank you very much for having that bell. Yeah. And I never saw that coming. I just, I mean, it was just my own ignorance, you know, but it was, I've had more positive interactions because of that bell. So, so there, another show that's going to come out is with Timberbell. Cool. Cool. To talk about, you know, the, the backstory on that company and whatnot. Cause, cause there are more people using trails. I, I think trail use has dropped a little bit this year compared to COVID, mm-hmm. but it's still up Yeah, compared to 2019 and prior to 2019. Well, everyone's mountain bikes hopefully keep working because parts are harder and harder to get. <laughs> you ain't joking there. I've I've got another bike on order, and I might I'm hoping I can see it for uh, maybe the end of this year, but probably more like for 2021 too. Jeez, yeah, you know, yeah. Um, but it's a product of just the times that we're in and the supply chain issues we have. Totally, totally. Well, thank you for having yeah. me on the podcast. I appreciate it for sure. Thank you very much. This has been super fun. I really appreciate everything, take, you taking the time and everything you, we've talked about. Totally. Awesome. Well, I'm going to run off and get into editing a bike review video to publish in a few hours here. So wish me luck. Awesome. <laughs> well, thank you, Jeff. Have a great afternoon and have a great rest of your week and a good weekend. Thanks, Josh. You the same. Talk to you later. Thank you very much for listening to the conversation with Jeff Kendallweed. If you have a chance, check out Jeff's YouTube channel and website. Links for both can be found in the show notes. Jeff covers everything from bike reviews to various riding locations. If you like what you have heard, please take the time to share these shows with others. Sharing these shows will help create an awareness of both the guests that have taken the time to be on the show and the podcast series itself.
Also, please remember to leave a comment and rate the show wherever you consume your podcasts. This podcast has been made possible by Mountain Bike Radio, Smith's Bike Shop in La Crosse, Wisconsin, and is an Evolution Trail Services production. If you have ideas on future communities or people to feature on Trail Fact, please don't hesitate to reach out by emailing evolutiontrails at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. 